welcome back to another edition of Aspen Answered. Today, Brandon, Katie, and I are so fortunate to be joined by Dr. Jean Williams, who served as the eighth president of ASP from 1993 to 1994. Dr. Williams is Professor Emeritus of the University of Arizona. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited for our conversation. If we well, could start off with you. Let me just first say I want to thank you for uh, inviting me and also uh, for doing this uh, research project. You know, I think it's going to make a wonderful contribution to understanding our history and evolution. And then uh, second, I want to apologize up front for how stilted some of my answers are going to sound. I had COVID in January and then rebound COVID, COVID and have yet to shake the brain fog. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think as clearly as I used to, and I, I can't articulate, and I'm forgetful. So what I had to do to do uh, justice to your thoughtful and comprehensive questions was to you know give them a lot of thought and research, and then write out my answers. Um, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to, rather than speak spontaneously, which I don't trust myself doing, uh, much of the time I'm going to have to read those answers. Well, we really appreciate you um, putting in the effort to do that. And I think we can all certainly understand that COVID has changed the way that we do things in multiple ways. So um, sorry to hear that, that I, um, you're still having some brain fog, but really glad to hear that all of your physical symptoms have alleviated. But we really, um, we look forward to hearing um, what you have to say. So if we could start with just your 30 second elevator pitch bio about where you are now. Okay, as you uh, said, I'm a professor emeritus. I've actually been retired for 15 years, and as much of a workaholic as I was, I've loved every minute of my retirement. Uh, I've been uh, blessed to live in Tucson for over 50 years, and it's a really beautiful city with fantastic weather, except for our summer heat. And I avoid that heat by traveling in a motorhome, uh, which typically means I have to head up up mountains or go up the Pacific coast. Uh, I, I try to seek beautiful scenery, golf courses, and streams where I can fly fish. Uh, I also do a lot of reading and hiking. And even though I'm retired, I didn't abandon sports psychology. It was uh, my passion for most of my years in academia. So I've stayed active in ASP. And since retirement, I've published four books and several research articles. That sounds like um, a work retirement as opposed to a relaxing retirement. But I'm sure the fly fishing on the coast helps. <laughs> helps yep. That sounds beautiful. I've so, Jean, in, in this podcast, um, one of the things uh, we hope to better understand is really like how key figures in the field like yourself got to where they are today. So, would you be willing to give us a little bit of background in terms of like your, your pathway that ultimately led you to what you call retirement, which we would probably <laughs> not, I don't know if we would call that retirement, <laughs> but um, how did you get to like just over, over your career to, to where you are now? Well, my answer is probably going to be very different from uh, our other past presidents, but my interest in sports psychology actually stemmed from coaching fencing at San Jose State University and the University of Arizona during the 60s and early 70s. Um, I, I ended up being a very successful coach, and certainly not because of my own prowess as a fencer. Uh, in, in all fairness, I was little more than a beginner. But my personal qualities, particularly being calm, positive, and analytical, were a perfect match for bringing out the best in my fencers. Uh, we beat teams coached by vastly better and more successful and more, I should say, more experienced coaches, including even a U.S. Olympic coach. Uh, and you have to remember, mm -hmm. I'm talking about a time that was pre-sports psychology and mental training. So what those coaching experiences did was lead me to understand how critical and optimal psychological climate was to athletic success. So I wanted to learn more about it. And in the mid-70s, I decided to get a doctoral degree. Uh, so I, I took a sabbatical, and I looked for sports psychology programs. You know, at that time, there were really only a couple. And I was fortunate to choose Florida State 
where I worked with Bob Singer. And the reason it was such a, a, a wonderful decision besides Bob is that year, the year I arrived, they had split from physical education to form their own graduate program in movement science. So, so basically all the sports sciences left physical education and became movement science. And it was a fantastic fit for me because their emphasis was on research training and also extensive coursework in both psychology and the movement sciences. And you have to notice, I didn't mention training or practice in applied sports psychology because it really did not exist then. Okay, so I, I got my doctoral degree in 1975, and I returned to the Exercise and Sports Sciences Department at the U of A. I had to give up my coaching because I'd proposed and then taught sports psychology courses within uh, the master's graduate program, and I ultim ultimately developed a concentration in sports psychology that offered the students three tracks, research, performance enhancement, and stress and wellness. I then uh, added a doctoral minor for interested grads from the psychology department and the counseling department. And then my last 12 years in academia, I transferred to the psych department uh, where my sports psychology grads were in the clinical program. <coughs> Excuse me. I also had a joint appointment with family and community medicine because they had added a preventative medicine and wellness program for their residents. And re really, I was blessed to work in such diverse programs and with such diverse and outstanding students, and that has had a major impact on me. I've also, probably because I started so early in the field, I had to be quite eclectic in my teaching and research. So, you know, I basically grew right along with the advances in the field of sports psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to mention something uh, specific to sports psych. Uh, probably the, uh, the most significant moment that formed my experiences came uh, from when John Silva asked me to be the secretary treasurer on the founding board of ASP and to thus play a, a key role in the formation and development of ASP. Uh, for years, John and I and a couple others had expressed frustration because NASPA showed little interest in applied sports psychology and absolutely no interest in professional issues such as how consultants might be trained and certified. Uh, we also wanted to form an organization that would reach out to individuals trained in psychology so that they would join us in advancing applied sports psychology. At that time, a number of them were already doing consulting with athletes, so the intention was also to try to assure that psychologists would be better trained to provide those uh, services. Uh, lastly, I, I want to mention just one other experience that had a major influence on me, and I have to credit my grad students for it. Uh, for years, I'd been super supervising the internships of the ones that wanted to, to have consulting experience. And, uh, they typically work their way up to being a sports psychology consultant with one of the University of Arizona athletic teams. And, you know, it was typical for us to work with six to ten teams at a time, and we provided those services for free. Uh, in one year of grads uh, came up to me and suggested that we formalize the program by getting a specific space and that we expand it to include things such as coach seminars and monthly newsletters. And they were adamant that we'd charge a fee because they made the point, you know, why would an athletic department ever start paying for consultants if they could get the services for free? You know, I, I agreed. The end result was BEST, B-E-S-T, which stood for Building Excellence in Sport Teams. Uh, the, the athletic department provided uh, facilities and modest funding, which grew to about 17000 a year. So, you know, those were basically wow. the experiences that impacted on me. That's, yeah, that's a, a pretty incredible, especially when you think about, you know, like, as you mentioned before, where the field 
was, um, you know, during the time that you're you're referring to. Um, and also the insights there, of, mentioned- of grads. I mean, I, I mean, I, I would right. never have probably right. gone and asked for funding. <laughs> and, you know, you know, they, uh, uh, you know, so as I said, I have to credit them. And, and it made a better program at the U of A, not because of me, but because of them. Well, it sounds like they had good mentorship to get to that that point. <laughs> when you first brought it up with athletics, do you feel, because I feel like this is a conversation that's happening in athletic departments all the time, when we have grad services available um, and to pay for that. Do you feel like when, that they assumed that you were going to ask for more money or so like, did they try to give you more money than you asked for? Do you feel like you like undersold? Like if you had well, to, to guess, what do you think their opinions were? Those are good. Those are good comments and good questions. Um, I guess part of my problem, I've never been motivated by money. <laughs> it's, it's not right. normally <laughs> I push the forefront of a conversation, but so I, I basically let them, uh, call the shots and you know and but meanwhile I literally had been doing this supervision for years plus prior to my uh, my own grads being able to work in the athletic department I had spent many years consulting with them just by myself uh, because I wanted you know first off I wanted to have the experience and I didn't feel it'd be appropriate to advise grads if I didn't also have the consulting so they were used to a lot of freebies um, and so, and then I also mentioned that we'd be deep doing even more cause we'd have the coach seminars and we do the newsletters. Uh, so they basically set the amount up and then the, the end result is it kind of backfired because, uh, they decided that, uh, they were going to hire one of my grads, <laughs> you know, after, and, uh, <laughs> So we ended up having a full-time sports psychologist in the athletic department, and the money, you know, the up to 17000 that had gone to my grads, and I basically used that to take them to conferences and to help fund their research. But, you know, we lost the, we lost the money, <laughs> but we, we kept the best, and we kept the facility, and the, the grads still got to work there and, uh, uh, you know, supplement Jeff, but we didn't get the finances anymore. But we did have a full-time sports psychologist with him. So that was, that was a plus. Yeah, that's great. So now that we have um, a bit more background on your journey through sports psychology and how you got to the positions that you were in, We'd really love to get a better snapshot of the field prior to your presidential service. Now, as you were the eighth president, um, I guess there wasn't really a whole lot of history prior to that. But um, how would you describe the field of sport and exercise psychology and ASP prior to you running for president? Okay, thanks, Megan. Uh, To answer that question, I'm going to need to use a few chronological markers. As I mentioned, I I began my sports psychology career in 1975. I was a founding board member in 1985, and I became president in 19, or I should say president-elect in 1992. Uh, I think when I ran for president, probably most people would describe the organization and applied sports psychology as having progressed from infancy to adolescence. You know, if you go back even further chronological, chronologically, it really wasn't until the 70s that sports psychology began to be recognized in North America as a separate discipline within the sports sciences. Uh, the recognition occurred because of the increase, really uh, massive increase in sports psychology research by a growing number of researchers. At that time, our primary goal was to advance the knowledge base through experimental research, but we didn't have agreement on what that knowledge base should be. Um, I would conjecture that the majority of topics probably fell within the realm of social psychology. And then uh, that kind of shifted during the late 70s and early 80s. Sports psychology research began to reflect more of a cognitive focus that uh, really increased uh, attention to topics such as self-talk and imagery. 
there was also a movement to get out of the lab and into field research and to develop more uh, theoretical models. You know, those changes really played a major role in the advancement and acceptance of applied sports psychology and ultimately led to the formation of ASP in 1985 and to the adolescent stage when I ran for president in 1992. So when you you mentioned before that that John uh, Silva had uh, math, and this uh, this was a significant moment in your your career and, and kind of um, the history uh, when he asked you to be a part of that um, that kind of founding executive committee. Um, so your service started very, very early uh, and quickly with ASP, uh, clearly. Um, when you think about your, your decision to run for president-elect, um, what comes to mind in terms of, of what may have motivated you to do so? Well, yeah, you're going to be uh, surprised at my uh, first response, but it, it was really my gender. You know, that was the major reason. Our first seven presidents were all men even though the slate always mm-hmm. included a man and a woman and excellent women, women had been put up, but they always lost. So a number of my col- colleagues oh. asked me to run because they thought my accomplishments and my visibility within ASP from the, you know, the th- I had the three years on the founding board and then I served on the certification committee. Uh, so they thought I might have uh, a better chance uh, to win. Uh, but I, I ran for other reasons, too. Uh, I w- had, obviously, major commitment to ASP goals, and I had a concern that we'd stalled in key areas. In the first few years, we tackled and accomplished so much, but many of our committees had stopped or slowed in making progress. Uh, and my other uh, motivation for running was We'd seen so much growth in in graduate programs and in students that I thought we needed to give more attention to trying to increase employment opportunities, Uh, not just within sport and exercise, but that we examine the possibility of expanding our qualifications and our database so that we could provide mental training within other achievement domains such as employee wellness programs in the corporate world. So, you know, those are basically... Uh, those the things that motivated me to run for president. Oh, no, that's great. And we're glad that you did. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's pretty incredible in, in looking at the list of presidents. So as you being the first female president, and then how many we've had, they kind of come in spurts. Um, it seems like we'll have like a five in a row, a couple in a well, row, and then like in fact, Megan, what I should mention was after me, our next three presidents were women. So, you know, yeah. we broke that uh, kind of uh, male bias, let's put it that way. Our men were outstanding, too. I don't mean to, you know, they were as good as the women, but we did right, think it right. was time for a, a, a woman to take the helm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And our last five presidents have been women, too, yep. it looks like. I'm hearing you say a lot about like students and mentorship, and I'm curious, um, what were you hoping to accomplish as president? And that I know it's seemingly a short time. Some people say it seems like a really long year, and some people say it seems like a really short year. Um, but what were you hoping to accomplish during your presidency? Well, um, I guess the best descriptor w- would be to say I. I wanted to be the cleanup hitter, to use the sport analogy. And that's because we'd started so many things, but we didn't carry them to fruition. So I, mm-hmm. I uh, planned on, in fact, in my own head, I had developed specific goals that I thought the different committees should uh, accomplish. And then I, I met with each of the chairs when I uh, was elected in president. I met with each of those chairs to get their perspective and a great agreement about what they wanted to accomplish and how they planned to do it. Um, and then I touched base with them, I'd say, at least you know, every two to three months to discuss their pro- uh, progress and uh, offer assistance. And but I also had them uh, do uh, written, six- and 12-month written reports, because I think sometimes when you have to put, put it to pencil that um, it, it motivates you more. 
And I can honestly say yeah. that when it, when it comes to what I might have accomplished uh, during that time span, um, well, you know, obviously I was president, so I met that first objective. We had a female. Um, right. And when it came to those committee, the committees, uh, we ended up with 103 goals, and we accomplished wow. 101 of them. I mean, 101 out of 103, that's pretty good. Uh, and if I, I'll mention, yeah, I'll mention just a few of the specifics. Uh, uh, for, for the fall conference that was at the end of my presidency, we were ready to discuss and vote on a human diversity position statement. We had a document of ethical principles and standards specific to ASP to vote on that. And the criteria for recertification of certified consultants. You know, obviously our certification program was so young then that we weren't recertifying, but it was now time to do so. Uh, we also finished the first draft of a promotional brochure that marketed sports psychology services to intercollegiate athletic departments and professional teams. We uh, determined that it was not currently feasible to pursue accreditation of graduate programs. And then a little side thing that we did that I hadn't planned on initially was we surveyed the most recent five years of graduates to assess their training, their career aspirations, the jobs that they had obtained, and how much time they spent in paid consulting. We also joined with the APA in revising and publishing a brochure regarding career opportunities in sports psychology and um, how that might affect different types of, uh, choosing different types of graduate programs. And then we implemented a grant program with initial preferential funding going to proposals that sought to document the effectiveness of interventions, including ones with non-sport populations. And then uh, finally, um, I announced that the following year, which is when I was in charge of the conference, we would give preferential treatment to submissions that included either diversity or consulting in non-sport achievement domains. It, it, that's, you know, it's really um, fascinating to hear, I guess, a couple things. Like one that, that comes to mind for me immediately is how how much progress has been made in the areas that, that you are directly involved with um, in terms of the different initiatives and, and some of the same uh, programming and, and um, just the different endeavors that ASP, you know, has um, continues to be involved in to, to hear, you know, um, to hear about where and when and kind of how that started and, and what that looks like now is I appreciate you um, sharing, sharing that because that's really one of the points of, of, of doing the podcast too, is to be able to capture that. And, um, it's, it's quite, it's, I think, fascinating just to hear, uh, hear about that, you know, how, how it's progressed since then. And sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Please. I was going to say that. And that's a good point, Brandon, because I think many of our younger members would think that the emphasis we now have on diversity and working with populations that are not sport and exercise, that that's kind of a newer phenomena, <laughs> but it really isn't. Right. Uh, it goes back right. to the uh, uh, really early nineties. Yeah. And that was the other, that was exactly the other thought I had too, was that um, just the idea that we're, we're talking about some of the same things today um, that were discussed, you know, back in, back in the nineties. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. We definitely appreciate that. Um, okay. So this is, this is one of our, our, uh, well, we love all of it. Um, this is one of our unique and kind of like fun, uh, other fun elements to the, to the podcast where we take a little bit of a break, um, from, from some of from the, the journey, um, and the accomplishments and, um, take some time to maybe hear about a, what you'd consider to be a fun story from your time and experience in the field. So you get to, you get to pick, um, whatever you would like to share that something that you, when you think about it, um, kind of brings a smile to your face and, and maybe something that, um, you reminisce over. Uh, we do like to offer bonus points if, if the story okay. involves other ASP members, uh, although there are no points in this whatsoever. So the points don't mean anything, but we will offer them. 
Uh, okay. Anyway, just as a consolation prize. All right. Uh, probably one of my favorite ASP stories comes from the year I was past president and responsible for the conference. Uh, it was our 10th anniversary, so we wanted it to be really special. Um, but I picked New Orleans and the Marriott for the host site. So in addition to the excellent program, we had a pre-conference golf and tennis tournament and a mastery run, but probably the highlight of the conference was the Saturday night masked Mardi Gras ball. Uh, we suggested oh, wow. the attendees. Yeah, <laughs> can you imagine that? In New Orleans, New Orleans had their own masked Mardi Gras ball. And we suggested that the attendees bring tuxedos, gowns, or Halloween-type costumes, and that we'd give them a mask at registration. So visualize this, a brass band led us from the hotel in a parade to the ferry where we crossed the Mississippi to a giant warehouse that housed the Mardi Gras floats. So we, we literally dined oh and danced amongst the lit floats. But you know, I have to, even though that's my favorite story, I've got to give you two side stories to it. Uh, <laughs> the mass ball was a blast, but the caterer that I'd hired and who supplied the Cajun food ran out before everybody ate. And the caterer oh, who supplied no. free beer and wine did not. So many of our members, <laughs> yes, I think you see where I'm going. Many of our members uh, yes. got a little tipsy. You know, I'd, I'd love to get those extra points for naming names, but yeah. I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, and then the... Yeah, in fact, they were having such fun, that, but when it was time to catch the last ferry uh, back, many refused to leave. So we had to become very, become very persuasive. Uh, the second, there was a second side story with the mass. I let the executive board pick their own during a break of the board meeting, and they had such fun trying them on and critiquing which looked best that when poor Tara Scanlon, the president, tried to get us back to the business meeting, they didn't want to stop. Uh, and then uh, also, you know, our members, you know, they didn't have a choice in their mask, you know, because it was just handed to them at registration. But throughout the conference, I observed that many of the members, they'd pull their mask out and they'd try to negotiate a trade with someone because somebody else had a better one. So it ended up being a real a icebreaker. Yeah, exactly. And it was an icebreaker for both old and new members. So that's kind of that's my, my favorite so story. Are there pictures from this? I can just imagine like Bob Weinberg, like pulling out a yes. mask on a boat. Yep. There were fantastic pictures. In fact, uh, I think, I think that one, I think the, uh, uh, Kent Lindemann and they were at one time trying to c collect pictures from old, uh, you know, old pictures of Aspen. We sent a bunch and one of my favorites was a picture of me, um, uh, as past president, Tara Scanlon as president, and Penny McCullough as president-elect. So we're in our, our quote, costumes or, or, or gown and standing in front of a big float. Uh, and then That's there were neat. lots of uh, And we might have even caught some of the tipsy ones. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure I was going to say, yeah, they, they probably are going to pay Ken good money to yep. make sure you those don't get out. Faces. Um. <laughs> so, wow, that's so fun. It was fun when we went back to New Orleans in, what was that, 2013 maybe? I'm probably off when we went back, but New Orleans is a, is a good conference location, I think. Gene, in what ways do you feel like the field of sports psychology has evolved? And based on the way that it's evolved, what are your thoughts about that? Both good, both bad, or, or maybe neutral? Okay, um... Remember, I've been active for almost 50 years, which really goes back to just, just after sports psychology was recognized as a separate discipline within the sports sciences. Um, for, you know, for example, an, an article came, it was put in one of our journals and it recognized me as one of eight female trailblazers to have greatly affected the development of sports psychology in the US. You know, so over that time span, those decades, I've seen unbelievable growth in the knowledge base in our a number of journals and the graduate programs and students, as well as acceptance of our consulting uh, services. 
for some of our younger members, I want to try to contrast that where we are now with where we were when I started consulting in the early 80s. At that time, there were almost no paid positions, and most coaches were hesitant to use a sports psychology consultant. In fact, many of the athletes that came into me for consulting, they'd oftentimes say, don't let my coach know I'm coming to you. Um, I will say, though, that I and my grads were probably more fortunate in those early years than others around the country because most of our consulting was done in the U of A athletic department where I'd coached and thus had uh, you know, trust and credibility. They, they knew I understood sport and competition and that uh, we would never do anything to undermine them or their program. And probably also we'd be more likely to know how to help. Now, let's talk a little bit about acceptance within academia and how that has changed. And I, I think maybe the, one of the best examples goes uh, back to when I first published my edited book, Applied Sports Psychology, Personal Growth to Peak Performance. That was 1986. My motivation to write the book was to promote applied sports psychology and effective consulting by having a textbook that would educate future applied researchers, consultants, and coaches regarding our excuse me, research and practice space. There was really uh, no such textbook at that time, but I thought our theories and models, database, and documentation of interventions had sufficiently grown that it was appropriate to write one. You know, most of my colleagues embraced the idea, but not all. In, in fact, a very prominent, probably one of the most prominent sports psychologists in the country, who was from a pre prestigious university, he was being interviewed by Nightline, a TV news show, regarding the disastrous consequences that had occurred when some psychiatrists and psychologists provided consulting to professional teams. He made the point that not only were these individuals not qualified, but no adequate knowledge base existed for anyone to do consulting. He then uh, mentioned my book, which had recently been published, and he called me a charlatan. <laughs> it was not fun, uh, and even worse, my parents were watching the news program. You can imagine the phone call from them wow. later that, that night. Uh, oh my goodness, but he, but yeah, he didn't, wow. Yeah, he, he didn't stop there though. He also called my department head to tell him what he thought of the book and of my involvement in plans to form a sports psychology organization that would promote applied sports psychology. The department head called me in, he put me on the carpet, and he told me to stop my ASP involvement. You know, obviously I refused, and as I went out the door, my closing retort was, this is why universities have academic freedom. So contrast right. those two antidotes with the growth and widespread accept acceptance that we now enjoy. Um, so as I said, many of our young, pe young people, I don't think they realize just how, how, where we were at one time and how we have evolved. But let me shift gears and talk about the evolution within ASP. Uh, John Silva probably covered this, but the organization began with three interrelated sections, intervention, performance enhancement, social psychology, and health psychology. The, the leadership goal was to promote the development of psychological theory, research, and intervention strategies in sports psychology. We made a commitment to being a scientifically-based discipline and to providing evidence-based practice, ergo, you know, scientist-practitioner model. ASP was also formed to address ethical and professional issues, particularly when providing consulting services in sport and exercise settings. Uh, I'd say that Throughout the first two-thirds of our history, the executive board, our committees, and our conference program focused on those goals. For the most part, there was good balance across the sections and between science and practice and an appropriate focus on uh, professional objectives. There were two notable exceptions, though. The, the first couple years, um, many of the members complained that the conference program was too much research, 
and not enough practice. And the other exception was within the health psychology domain. You know, even with our efforts, there was ongoing fr frustration that within the organization, not enough growth occurred in exercise psychology research and promotion of exercising. Okay, let me uh, kind of now contrast that with my perception of the last third of our history. <clears throat> I would I, I, be, be the first to admit I may be wrong, but my perception is that we no longer have good balance amongst the three sections and between science and practice. In fact, by 2017, we'd lost most of our social psychology members, uh, you know, perhaps because they were primarily researchers and they did not see ASP meeting their scholarship needs or, or appreciating their domo domain. A hundred plus people now go to a new social justice and sport organization and uh, many of those social psychologists have also gone back to ASPA, to NASPA. You know, the, 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 I think this is a real loss to our members and particularly our CMPCs because they get less exposure to the latest research in traditional topics such as group dynamics, communication, and leadership, but also because of the growing importance of their work on issues such as gender, race, sexuality, and cultural competence. Um, and lastly, I'd mention that ASP recognition and promotion of exercise psychology has also diminished. And, you know, that's in a time in which we've got overwhelming research that documents how critical it is to physical and psychological well-being. And that most of our population is not fit. Um, I'd say I have also have concern that we're slowly evolving to an organization in which the primary emphasis is on application within performance psychology and that we're not doing that as well as we could. I know that might be a controversial statement and I feel badly for saying it, but you know, maybe the best example of what led me to that conclusion is that our initial criteria that was approved to become a consultant, it was designed to provide minimal competencies and training experiences. The intention was that the criteria would increase as our knowledge base grew and education models incorporated training in both sports science and psychology. Yet 30 years later, the opposite occurred. We dropped two of three sports psychology, one of two sports science, and one of two psychological foundations courses. And I, I'd ask the question, can we make the case that CMPCs will have competence when their exposure to the actual knowledge and practice base is so minimal? You know, even with the excellent addition of an exam, you know, my answer would probably be probably not. In fact, 40 years in academia make me skeptical that passing one exam will have such favorable and lasting consequences. Um, in fact, you know, confirming some of those suspicions starting last month, the Certification Council at least raised the sports psychology uh, course criteria back to three. So I think that's a great move in the right direction. So I think, you know, um, you know, based on kind of like what you're describing, because you're kind of getting into, um, you know, obviously where we are now, but then it also sounds like a little bit maybe like the direction, you know, that we're heading. And, and I'm curious um, if you have any additional thoughts in terms of um, ASP in the field, in you know, regarding the direction that both are, are moving right now, kind of more in the future. Okay. Uh, again, good question. Uh, the executive board is now evaluating grad programs uh, and looking into whether we should start accrediting them, uh, which I think is a wonderful uh, direction. In fact, uh, some of us have been concerned that traditional sports psychology programs that are taught by faculty with degrees in sports psychology, that they're giving way to pop-up programs that might just add a sports psychology course, sometimes even taught by an ad hoc 
faculty member without a degree in sports psychology or even the qualifications to super supervise CMPCs. So I think raising the CMPC training criteria back to three sports psychology courses and moving toward accrediting grad programs will hopefully lessen or even prevent those pop-up programs in the future. You know, I think we're, it's also going to uh, provide prospective students with better guidance uh, in selecting grad programs. I think another action that will influence the future of ASP is last year's approval of a constitutional amendment that officially expands the performance domains to include, but not be limited to business, arts, and tactical professions such as the military, law enforcement, and medicine. Uh, at the time that vote occurred, some members had expressed uh, concern regarding whether we had sufficient database to provide evidence-based interventions with those populations. Regardless of what the answer is to that question, I think in the future we're going to see a considerable expansion of that database as well as more conference programs illustrating psychological interventions with these populations and that we'll see efforts to assure that CMPCs get sufficient training with those populations and that the exam evaluates that competency. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if it will happen, but I hope AS leadership might also consider the role that we could play in promoting exercise, our exercise psychology mission with those new uh, populations. Um, there are other issues that I think need addressing in the future, and I'll give just a, a few examples. Will ASP conferences continue to have an Im imbalance between research and applied sessions and minimal coverage of social and exercise psychology work? Will we continue to see intervention presentations that fail to indicate how they're evidence-based? You know, I, I want to put my concern in those questions in perspective, and I'm going to go all the way back to ASP formation in our first newsletter in 1986. Ron Smith, a clinical psychologist who became our second president, wrote in that first newsletter that it would be a tragic error if ASP was to confirm either explicitly or implicitly that science and application are two different domains of activity. I think we should give some thought as to whether we're making that error. You know, good practice must be steeped in science and theory, and practice feeds back to good science. You know, I'm, I'm so proud of what ASP has done over its years and what it continues to do, and I'm hopeful that we'll answer no to those questions. You know, if, if we do not, I fear we're going to lose our scholars and will diminish what we might have offered to the growth and evolution of the field and to the best training and continuing education of our members. You know, finally, in terms of our future and perhaps most critical to where ASP might go is the answer to the question of whether the membership will pass the proposed constitutional amendment to add mental health including the diagnosis and treatment of mental illness to the mission of ASP. You know, to review what we probably all know, to practice as a mental health psychologist, one needs to be licensed in clinical or counseling psychology. You know, training in sport, exercise, and performance psychology, including becoming a CMPC, does not qualify one to practice as a mental health service provider. So I ask these questions, what happens when we blur the lines between performance enhancement consultants and uh, mental health providers? You know, for the small percentage of CMPCs that are licensed, does being someone's mental performance consultant and their clinical psychologist cross the boundary of a dual relationship? Might we end up with what is perceived as second-class CMPCs and training programs because they cannot deal with mental health issues. Uh, I'd ask and ask advocate for athletes that need mental health services 
without declaring that the organization provides that service. And then uh, finally, how does the recent addition of broader performance domains affect the proposed amendment? Do we advocate for being the mental health service providers to business people, police officers, firemen, medical per personnel, and the military? And finally, would such a change in ASS mission take away from what has always been its uniqueness and expertise? You know, that is providing leadership for the development of theory, research, and intervention strat strategies in performance and exercise psychology. I feel like all such important questions. It's almost uh, for those that are listening. What uh, interesting, you know, valuable questions to you know bring into the classroom, you know, for discussion and, and other uh, other areas too, even outside of you know the business meetings, um, you know, at at the conference um, because they're so incredibly you know, thought provoking, um, when we really think about, you know, what, what's to come, you know, in the future for the organization and the field. Go ahead, Megan. Oh, I was going to say, like, as you were speaking, I had a similar thought that Brandon had about how those questions in and of themselves, I feel like we could create so much dialogue around them and hear different perspectives and, thinking about um, like my own place in the field uh, because I'm not clinically trained. Um, I have a counseling degree, but I'm not a licensed counselor. And so even thinking about like my place and then our students places and then the ethics of that just in itself, those are all such great questions to think about and ponder and, and really think about how they fit into the organization in the field. It's, it's a big decision. And um, obviously my com comments are uh, influenced by, you know, having a a forty year perspective, uh, and uh, I think uh, I hope we we don't make the decision until we've had had that dialogue occur, and that all of us give that a lot of uh, sufficient thought to be comfortable with uh, whatever choice we make, and that it would be best for ASP and best for the field. And definitely one of the reasons why, you know, we encourage not just, you know, not just members, but students and other stakeholders in the organization and the field to, to be at those meetings, to, to be, you know, to be privy to those discussions, to contribute um, to them. Um, you know, I know the idea sometimes of, of sitting in, you know, another meeting is not always the most, uh, uh, inherently like you know exciting but you know at least in my experience um they tend to be very very enlightening um kind of um fruitful sometimes very passionate um you know conversations that i think are so important to to the field and so um my 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 hope would be the same as what, what you just described gene in terms of of having those conversations um and and you know folks being um comfortable, you know, speaking their, their mind and, and taking advantage of those opportunities to, to share their thoughts about what exactly like what you said, very important decisions. Right. So I, I, no, I felt I had to say what I said and, uh, I would be accepting obviously of any decision that ASP would make. Uh, I just hope that we do all the preparation needed on the front end of addressing it from every angle and then uh, come to right. a vote by, by the membership, by the membership. It should, it's a constitutional right. change because that currently is not in our mission. I mean, uh, according to the constitution. So we'd have to expand and, and it will have a major impact on what kind of leadership the organization uh, uh, provides in the future, the direction we move in. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we appreciate you sharing those thoughts and being willing to discuss those with us. I also think that it leads really nicely into the next question. Um, so what advice do you have for students and new professionals entering into the field now, given all of those wonderful points in consideration? <laughs> well, uh, actually, my, you know, probably my, my comments are pretty obvious and simplistic, but I think my first 
would be to try to have clarity regarding your interest in the field of sports psychology and what kind of career you hope to pursue. But you also have to keep an open mind to see that that, that might evolve to something very different. Uh, if I was just talking about prospective graduate students, I'd say that I think the most critical decision they, they will make is what graduate program they attend. Um, because if they pick a good one for them, it will help maximize their chances of achieving their goals. Uh, I'd also suggest that they try to visit for a couple days so they can meet the faculty, sit in on the classes, and uh, get the perspectives of the students that are already in the program, and then also find out what the graduates of that program are doing. Um, and then I'd say whatever program they ultimately enter, obviously do the best that they can, but don't, don't stop at the minimal requirements. You know, seek every growth experience available. And one of those growth experiences could be joining and attending ASP conferences and, as Brandon said, going to the business meetings. Uh, for young professionals, as surprising as this might sound, I think my major advice would be try to have an attitude that you're learning is just beginning. <laughs> you know, you know, they might have just walked out with a PhD, but I would, I truly mean that you need to have the attitude that your learning is just beginning. You know, if you that will lead to constantly trying to improve the effectiveness and to embrace every growth opportunity that comes along. You know, if they do that, I think they're going to be amazed at what they're able to achieve and how satisfying and how much fun it's going to be. Sounds like we also need to throw a masquerade ball in the future. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. I'm thinking, um, so we use your, here at Georgia Southern, your book is our textbook. We use that in two of our classes. So I think it's really, um, I always think it's so, when you meet the people who literally wrote the book on doing what it is that we do, it's just, it's so incredible. So I appreciate you sharing that advice with, with not just I think yep. advice for new people entering the field, but all people in the fields. That's good point. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. Good, good point. And thank you for the kind comments about my book. Well, I was, I was actually thinking about the same thing, Gene, um, when you were talking about like some of the, the barriers that you encountered, which I, I'm so grateful you shared the, those stories um, that because I, I was not aware of that, um, you know, and the pushback you got, you know, from your involvement um, in the organization for publishing that book. And I, I remember as an undergrad, one of the things that one of my uh, professors at the time used to talk about was when you're trying to gauge, you know, the, um, I don't know if value is the right word, but maybe impact and, and contribution that a text has, you know, within their given, you know, profession, you know, one of the metrics you can certainly use would be to take a look at what edition, you know, you're on. And, and um, we talked about that for a little while. And, and, you know, obviously, I know we all know the idea being that when you start getting up there, um, you know, a book that's been around is, you know, and it's, you know, eighth, are we on the eighth edition now, Gene? Is that we're, right? We're, eighth? Yeah, we're, we're on the eighth and then our ninth that's going to, will be coming out will actually be our 40th year in publication. Oh my goodness. Wow. See, I mean, it's like, it's what an incredible kind of story, you know, you know, when you think about the pushback initially um, and, and to be, you know, on that ninth edition, um, what an incredible, you know, uh, contribution that's ended up being. And, and we're very, uh, very proud to, to be able to incorporate that into some of our work here. Well, thank you. In fact, uh, I think when it comes to what an impact I might have been on, had on the field, obviously, and I shouldn't say my book, I should say our book, because what made it uh, so uh, effective in its ability to stay abreast of our latest research and practice, you know, the credit has to go to my many outstanding uh, contributors. And, and I think it has been, as, as you've mentioned, a, a textbook in introducing students to the field and in training our graduate sports psychology students. So I, I take great pride in, uh, in that book and 
uh, being being the fact that it's still in demand, and we've worked our way literally through 40 years of sports psychology history and research. Incredible. Along those same lines, given all that you've accomplished in the fields um, and the organization and for women, what do you hope that your impact on the field ultimately will be? Okay. Again, good question. Uh, besides the book, I, I'd first say that um, I was a key person, as we've talked about, in the founding development and evolution of ASP across its 35-plus years. So part of my influence or impact comes indirectly through the impact ASP has had on the field and the people in it. Uh, you know, it was a major part of my uh, career and love of sports psych, so I take great pride in what ASP has done. Uh, third, if I was going to address my research, I'd say the most uh, meaningful impact probably came from the model of stress and athletic injury that Mark Anderson and I first proposed in 1988 to explain how stress and other psychosocial variables uh, influence injury. The, the underlying mechanisms that cause that injury and then inter interventions to prevent, prevent it. In fact, the model is still used today, 35 years later, to guide research and intervention in psychology of injury. And I guess my final comment about impact would be the impact that's occurred through my students. Uh, for 20 years, I headed an exercise and sports grad program and for many of those years, it was the largest in the country. I then spent 12 years in the psychology department where I was affiliated with the clinical program and worked with doctoral students that wanted to specialize in sports psychology. In both those programs, I was blessed to work with really outstanding students, many of whom have gone on to have successful careers in the field. You know, I, I take great pride in whatever impact I might have had on them through my teaching, research, and ment mentorship. It seems like you've done a lot of things really, really well when you look at just with the student piece alone and um, what they have gone on to do. And, and it's such a wide and far-reaching, I guess, web or, or net that you've cast Um you know, in terms of, of the field and then the people that are such, you know, um, important um, individuals and their impact on the field. It seems like, you know, if we're talking about the, um, what is it, the five degrees uh, of Kevin Bacon? Um, <laughs> six, uh, six, six, I mean, I think we could probably do the same thing with Eugene in terms of uh, if we look at all of the, you know, major accomplishments and the different individuals that have had such an impact that uh, in some way, shape or form, they can probably, those individuals can be traced back to uh, having <laughs> been connected to you at some point in time. Uh, well, uh, again, thank you, Brandon. And, you know, that, that's the uh, advantage of being my age <laughs> and also <laughs> of having been around from you know, the, the being blessed with being entered, enter the field of sports psychology in its infancy and then having stuck with it. And, and as I said, a lot of that has been through the organization of ASP. It's uh, very special to me. Is there anything else, Jean, that, um, that we haven't asked about that you wanted to make sure you had some time to, to share with our, with our listeners about ASP or the field or, or anything at all? Uh, no, but again, I, I want to thank all of you for uh, coming up with this uh, research project and then also for the you know, careful thought that you gave to the questions that you provided us with us. I, I think it will uh, have a really major impact on understanding not just the history within AS, but also within the field. So thank you for your work uh, and for your, uh, the brilliance of this idea. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's that's a very high compliment. We appreciate you saying that. But I mean, without people such as yourself being willing not only to serve the field, but to agree to sit down with us and have these conversations and, and really, I think, be to provide feedback for a field that we all love and that we want to see continue to grow in the best way that it can. And so um, 
thank you so much for sitting with us. Thank you feels like not enough sometimes to say, but we're so appreciative of you sharing these stories with us and your experience and then really all that you've done for the field because we certainly, we probably wouldn't be here in this way. Our grad program wouldn't be as successful. Um, so thank you so much for, for not only all that you've done, but um, specifically for sitting down with us this morning. Oh, thanks again. I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I wish you well on the rest of the interviews. I'll, I'll look forward to uh, uh, hearing them. We appreciate that. And as always, we've asked and Dr. Williams has answered. Thank you again so much, Gene, for joining us today. And we will look forward to having all of our listeners join us on our next episode of Aspen Answered. <laughs>